When it comes to the slave trade, where do we start? Before the 400-odd years of the triangular trade, the plantations, the whips, the Sunday markets, the racial signs, what were the first stirrings of an industry that we now understand as the pinnacle of inhumanity, but in the 1600s seemed like the height of financial innovation? How is an idea like that spoken into being? How does the enslavement of others become something normalised, celebrated even? Was it a slow burn process or shock and awe? How did Britain's slaving past begin? I'm Moya Lothian MacLean, a journalist on the journey to discover the truth about Britain's slaving history. This is Human Resources. There are two sides to every story, often three, four, five. To find a truth, you must listen to them all. Over the next two episodes, I'll be examining the sometimes conflicting stories that surround the first stirrings of what later became the transatlantic slave trade. In this episode, I'll be looking at the European perspective of how the slave trade came into being before British involvement powered it to become one of the dominant industries of the imperial age. And to do so, we'll be talking about a different empire, buoyed by naval power that preceded any British colonies, the mighty dominion of the Portuguese. The Portuguese were in contention with the Spaniards in the 15th century on who would exercise, I suppose, more dominion, you could call it that, over the region of the Atlantic. And at this period in the 1430s and 1440s, the problem is still mostly in the Canary Islands and some islands that are still Portuguese territories today, the Azores and Madeira. And subsequently, they begin traveling along the southern coast of Africa and eventually established a first fortress in what is today Almina in Ghana. But before that, one of the ways to secure possession over these new, or at least to secure that these territories would belong to the Portuguese crown and not the Spanish crown. This is Patricia. My name is Patricia Martins Marcos. I'm finishing my PhD in history of science and history of Portuguese colonialism. And I work specifically in the histories of race and the history of making human kinds or producing hierarchies of being, as I prefer to call it. And so I look at the intersections of race sexuality in the early modern period, which is slightly less common, through a lens of intersectionality. What are the Portuguese doing in Africa at this time? What the Portuguese do, they have diplomatic negotiations with the Vatican and they secure a couple of papal bulls that assure that the Portuguese have not only rights of enslavement over the Africans that they quote unquote find in these territories, but also that they have the right to enslave all the Africans that they find on the one hand, but also that they have rights over the perpetual conditions. So hereditary slavery. So we're talking about 1452, we have the Dom Diversus Papal Bull, and then in the subsequent years, in 1458, we have another papal bull that establishes rights of perpetuity. And so it means that the Portuguese could forever 
attack sites on the African coast under the pretense that they were infidels, quote unquote, and based on that religious construction, say that they would now be enslavable or slaves. And not only them themselves, which used to be more the traditional view of a slave was that the condition was not necessarily hereditary. But what happens with the Portuguese is that that condition becomes, in fact, hereditary. And so it means that not only does the crown have perpetual rights of producing and creating the legal condition of the slave, but it also establishes this new legal framework that says that not only that person will be a slave, but every subsequent generation will also be a slave. I want to rewind for a moment before the Catholic Church starts handing out agreements that the Portuguese can enslave Africans in a country the church has nothing to do with. How does this enslavement even start? In the Middle Ages still, there was already an established slave trade within the Mediterranean, and the Portuguese and the Spaniards were connected to that trade. And from that trade, a lot of which was linked with Arabic and Muslim networks, a lot of that slave trade already attached a negative connotation to blackness. And so I think the problem of slavery starts exactly with the problem of blackness. But going back to a little bit of another element that you talked about, within Iberia, this also, in addition to the Mediterranean slave trade, there's another issue, which is an increasing formation or hardening of an ethno-theological ideal of a pure community, a community of pure blood. And so we start seeing, for example, 1448, with the beginning of the Spanish Inquisition, the hardening of anti-Muslim and anti-Semitic sentiment in Iberia. And so this moment builds on an established iconography that England also already had that linked Jews with blackness. And so this is an interesting development of the Middle Ages was that race and human degradation is attached to blackness. How does that concept of blackness develop further in 15th century Catholic Europe? One important element here is that the symbolism of blackness is really important because we are again under a very confessional framework. So the framework of Catholicism and Christianity. And under the framework of Catholicism and Christianity, whiteness becomes elevated as a symbol of Catholicism, of purity. And here is not just purity of the soul, but it's purity of religion itself and of one's body. And so we start seeing through blood purity laws that begin to be implemented against Jews, against quote unquote Moors, but also against Blacks and Roma people and indigenous peoples in Portugal in the 16th century, we start seeing the traveling of the idea of blackness being attached to degraded humankinds. And so, for example, we notice this when the Portuguese arrive in Brazil and the Portuguese want to establish what will become the plantocracy that will be fully fledged by the 18th century. One of the things that they do is they attach the quote-unquote blemish of blackness to indigenous peoples. And so they call them the blacks of the land. And this is an important element because before the transatlantic slave trade starts in earnest and the Portuguese start transporting Africans or enslaving and transporting Africans from Africa, 
to uh, Brazil, what they do is they actually base the model of the plantation on indigenous enslavement. And so the condition of blackness attached to indigenous peoples was actually very important then. But there was multiple reasons why they had to alter this model amongst which demographic collapse and diseases and just because people fled and there were more wars with indigenous peoples. And so the transportation and the kind of testing that the Portuguese began doing in the 15th century in Africa, the Portuguese, as they arrive in Africa, as for example, they begin establishing Elmina and etc., they're not yet traveling to Brazil. They're not yet moving, creating the, the transatlantic slave trade. They are, however, part or have established an inter-African trade within some islands that they had begun to occupy in São Tomé e Príncipe and Cape Verde. And actually Madeira, these islands become testing grounds for what the slave trade is. This is where for about a century before the transatlantic slave trade starts in earnest traveling to Brazil, this is actually where they test it out, this system. And the system only expands after that moment. And so here we're talking in the 1400s and early 1500s, where there's a lot of action on the Gold Coast of Africa, and a lot of action mostly just within Africa itself. You often come across the phrase, race as a social construct. And here we are, hearing just how this construct was developed in order to establish what people should be enslaved. These practices, initially shaped by the Portuguese, saw blackness as a blemish and still inform how our society operates today. These early slave colonies, they must be making goods or the slave labour wouldn't be needed. They were testing out already sugar. Sugar had been a product that the Portuguese had chased for a really long time. They had first tried it out in the 1300s in southern Portugal. They began testing it again as they travelled to Madeira and to Açores. They, they also established not exactly the plantation, as you would imagine, but they established engenhos, which is the mechanisms through which sugarcane is processed. So they established those in Madeira, and as they traveled, they actually tried it in multiple locations. So they tried it in Saint Tomé for a really long time, in Cape Verde, and they even tried it in India. And it never quite worked. It was really when they reached Brazil, and especially when they reached the area of Bahia, that it became evident that that area was just very good for sugarcane production. The climate was just very favorable. But in the beginning, it was actually quite hard to attract people to Brazil. And so in some areas like Pernambuco, what you actually have, you have Jewish diasporas establishing in Brazil and sometimes in Africa because they were fleeing blood purity laws and the expulsion laws of 1497 and 1498. And so you have this actually very multiracial and multiracializing landscape. And the slave trade necessitates that. And not by chance in the 17th century, the Dutch connection of Portuguese Sephardic Jews in Amsterdam will also 
become very important. So it's not just when we talk about the slave trade, we are talking about more than one form of racialization. And I think that's a really important thing to take into account. We are dealing first with the pursuit of whiteness, of a whitening and of the idea of purity, basically, of a homogeneous population in Portugal, all of which should be Christian. And because of that pursuit, we see multiple diasporas and we see a justification for the slave trade that first is produced on confessional grounds and on the grounds that these people are infidels and this is a just war quote unquote, this is the legal standard for it. But then it develops into other kinds of justifications that are not necessarily religious anymore. And here I'm speaking more about the 18th century, when the change in the justifications to slavery become much more medicalized. To clarify, when we talk about the Portuguese involved in this early slave trade, what roles are they taking on? Do we mean ship's captains, merchants, or are we talking about ideologues in the Catholic Church providing philosophy that underpins enslavement? You have a little bit of everything. You have merchants, you have people who see opportunities to rise socially. I think we always should start by understanding that these societies are, in principle, very fixed. There's a very specific order. And you are born in a specific place and you are destined to that place. And all of your quote unquote offspring is also destined to remain in that location. And so, first of all, you have elites that don't want to leave Portugal. The idea of leaving to the different colonies was not that appealing. Maybe India, Portuguese India, Goa was the most appealing of them all. But to Brazil, it was very hard to actually get people with contracts. And so the crown gives sujmarias, which is a kind of a land contract. And I always tell my students that colonialism operates by transforming life into property. And that's what the Portuguese do exactly in Brazil, because they arrive in a land that already has indigenous peoples, but they produce a map and they create these captaincies. And in the first plantation system is actually based on this hereditary land tenure of the captaincy. So this is sort of an important model to understand. But aside from that, there's actually quite a bit of difficulty in obtaining colonists. And a lot of Portuguese colonization is actually convicts, Jewish diasporas that flee Portugal and relocate both to Africa and to Brazil. And a lot of these people were Many of them were paupers or many of them were sort of middling classes and they see an opportunity for land and for social movement. And there's some literature from the 17th century talking about how people were whitened in Brazil and people who were actually from lower classes on Portugal become quite elevated socially in the colonies. I want to know more about Brazil. We talked a bit there about that early settling, but when does the Portuguese slave trade reach Brazil? Is that the point where the expansion of slavery suddenly explodes? They reach Brazil in 1500. That's more of a land claim against Spain. And following that, there is an occupation of the territory. I mean, I don't mean occupation in the 
Spanish sense of the word, where there was the idea of the conquista, because quite frankly, the Portuguese never had the demographic capacity to do anything like that. And they also found a very different kind of territory with different kinds of peoples. But the first land tenancies that are established, they are established and they very much build on indigenous enslavement. And it's not always enslavement, but in indigenous enslavement is an important element. The transatlantic slave trade in the 1560s and 1580s, that's when that begins to really grow. The beginning of the transatlantic slave trade to Brazil begins in earnest in this moment of the mid 1500s and the second half of the 1500s. Just to clarify as well, Brazil was the biggest importer of enslaved Africans more than any other country. Is that right? Yes, Brazil was the biggest importer of enslaved people. It's estimated that roughly five million people, so close to four and a half, five million people were just taken and enslaved from Africa to Brazil. And we are speaking mostly the Southern Atlantic. So what would be today Angola and thereabout? And so Angola and Luanda was the main harbor, not the only one, but the main harbor at this point. And so the slave trade, unlike the British trade, did not triangulate and it was focused on this two-way street, basically, between Brazil and Angola. To put that into perspective, Scotland's population is roughly five million people. So that's the entire population of Scotland shipped to Brazil. We're still in the 1600s. What is the impact of the Portuguese slave trade upon other nations, such as the British, who don't really kick off their slave trade until the late 1600s? It's not that well studied. Most of it, we know a lot about Spain, Portugal, Spain. We don't really talk a lot about the interaction with France, with the Netherlands. We know the interaction with the Netherlands in the 17th century because of the diasporas of Jews and because Portuguese Jews established themselves in Amsterdam. But I don't know very well with, with England, I'm sorry. This is something we've come up against quite a bit in our research for this series. The history of the transatlantic slave trade is so fragmented and only individual highlights, if you will, are included within the connected story. For a part of history that is so significant to how the world trades and operates today, it is a little puzzling as to why these stories are so disconnected and in part, understudied. Returning to the influence of religion, the Catholic Church is still all powerful in Europe at this point. What is their role in the early slave trade? The Catholic Church is crucial to the work of enslavement and part of the legal legitimation of slavery is religious. Charles Boxer has a book called The Church Militant in Portuguese Expansion. And I, I think it's a classic book right now. It's I think from the 80s. The title I think says it all. The church is really important for the labor of colonization and expansion in general. But then it performs a critical role also in Brazil especially the Jesuit order that becomes the largest owner of enslaved people in the Americas. By the time that the Portuguese crown abolishes and expels the Jesuit order in 1759, they are the biggest owners of 
people of humans in the Americas in a sole order. So I think that actually lends a lot of scale to this issue. And we've seen recently in the United States, the Jesuit order owning up to that past, but we haven't seen it either in Portugal or in Brazil, the same kind of atonement for that. But they have a fundamental role. So there's an important issue here is that in the colonization of Brazil, there's a tension between a merchant class of planters and the Jesuits or other orders, but the Jesuit is the main order. There's a tension between them on the kind of model of enslavement and colonization that should be pursued. And so the Jesuits always have conversion as part of this labor, but they also use enslavement to justify slavery. And so one important element to note here is that when we talk about slavery, we often talk about it or frame it in terms of the polar opposites of humanization and dehumanization. In the Catholic framework, slavery demands humanity. And so this means that the African, the black person was a human, had a soul, because that was the justification for enslavement is that they were laboring for the, if not the salvation of their bodies, at least for the salvation of their eternal souls. And this comes from scripture. A lot of these notions of the expendable body and the body that is always ruled by someone else and that is ruled by someone else in order for the soul to be saved, this is a very old scriptural notion and it comes from the interpretation of scripture. The interpretation of religious texts have been fought over for as long as they've been in existence. Was there any pushback on the readings of the scriptures that argued for slavery? There was always resistance. And the problem with the archives sometimes is that that resistance was never as written or not written as often as we would like it to. But in the 17th century, there was an African prince who was part of an Angolan group, the Mbundu, whose father had been the king. He had an alliance with the Portuguese. After his father dies, his uncle becomes the king. And the uncle does not quite feel the same way about the Portuguese. And so Lorenzo Silva Mendonça, he travels from Angola to Brazil. He is in Brazil around the time of Palmaj, like I mentioned, this war against this Maroon community. He doesn't travel alone. He has some of his family members and they were African aristocracy. He travels to Brazil, the Portuguese crown is concerned, and sends him to Portugal. And we don't know really the details of his life exactly in Portugal, but he gathers data for a legal case that he presents to the Vatican against the Portuguese, the Spanish crown, and the Vatican itself. This legal case that he presents is for the abolition of slavery. And his argument is that slavery produces such deathly conditions that it actually interferes with God's plan for life. So God's plan for life is that you are not supposed to kill yourself and no one is supposed to interfere with the span of your life. Your life will be the way God intended it to be. And his argument is actually that slavery removes the uncertainty from the hour of death because it expedites death. It creates the conditions of death. And so that's a very important argument How is this story? 
the one about Portugal being the originators of transatlantic slavery, told and taught today. In Portugal, we don't debate that we were the first to create the transatlantic slave trade. We don't teach children in, in school that we were the country that most enslaved for the longest time. And so people continue enamored with this image of navigators and caravels, but we never talk about what caravels did. And this is an important problem. And there's another exhibit right now in the National Archive on science, technology, and history. And again, we talk about caravels and we don't talk about what they did. And so we mobilize discourses of progress, of modernity around science, technology, development, and being at the something that is very often talked about, the birth. And so there's a very triumphalist discourse around all of this. And this triumphalist discourse can only persevere and endure because we erase slavery from this history. How does that affect the descendants of slavery who live in Portugal today, plus the African diaspora who've ended up in Portugal because of its colonial history? First of all, we don't even know how many Portugal has, diasporic, Afro-descendant. We don't know because our system, we just had a census and in preparing the census in the previous years, there was a debate, again, led by the Afro-descendant community who said that we want to know how many people we have. We want to have ethno-racial data because we need to understand the level of income inequality, the level of redlining, all of those issues. And again, they refused because there was this idea of universalism that Supposedly, we are all citizens and therefore equal, but of course, this does not guarantee for structural violence and structural racism. That's one fundamental problem. The second fundamental problem was hopefully surpassed just last year, was when uh, Portugal altered its law of citizenship to allow citizenship to Afro-descendant people. And so this is a problem of Portuguese democracy. Following Portuguese democracy in 74 and our first constitution in the democracy, we changed our citizenship law from you solely, so being born in the land and you are automatically a citizen, to you sanguini, so hereditary right. And so that meant that a lot of Afro-descendants who were born in Portugal after 1984 actually did not have a right of citizenship because either their parents were under a mixed legal status or their parents were not considered Portuguese as they moved to Portugal. And so we actually have entire generations of people who were precluded from acquired citizenship, which in turn actually sometimes made their very presence in this country a crime. The last element that I would say is that Afro-descendant populations in Portugal are fundamentally concentrated around Lisbon. Not just, but the largest uh, sections are what we call Greater Lisbon. And so that includes suburbs in the north side of Lisbon and the south side, which are actually different cities, but again, Greater Lisbon. And of course, we have a problem of access to places to live and to dignified places to live in there as well. And so we have a lot of, quote, slum areas or areas that we call periferia that have the concentration of black populations. 
But we also have, on the other hand, and this uh, I was just with a friend the other day, and she told me this story, the fact that she's Black and she lives in the city center cannot be imagined still by some people. And so you are always someone who lives in these poor neighborhoods and you are essentialized for that. It doesn't matter how much you try and focus on the beginning of the slave trade. The conversation always circles back to the here and now because the past shapes the present so nakedly. What Patricia has told me about the beginning of the slave trade at Portuguese hands is stark, brutal, and seems linear. But it's time to hear the other histories that make up this narrative. And not all of them are told according to the Western ways of documenting the past. Human Resources was written by me, Moya Lothian-McLean. Our editor and producer is Renee Richardson. Our researchers are Dr. Alison Bennett and Arisa Lumba. Production assistant is Rory Boyle. Sound design by Lex Ademora. Social assets by Forward Slash. This is a Broccoli production. <laughs>